All right. Well, good morning, everyone. Oh, that was pathetic. Good morning, everyone. Good. Good to know you're all with me here this morning. Glad you're here. My name is Chris. I am one of the pastors here. Um, just want to welcome you all this morning. If this is your first morning with us, uh, or maybe you haven't been here for a while, we're going through this series uh, called Building Blocks. It's the basics of our Christian faith. Uh, in case you didn't know, uh, I know Adam introduced it. This is a church that is passionate about Jesus, and Jesus is the central piece, the foundational piece of our faith. That's why we're called Christians. To be a Christian is to be a follower or a believer in Jesus. And so that's who we're going to talk about this morning. I am really excited about that, the, the idea of being here and getting to talk to you about Jesus this morning. Now, as Adam and I uh, put this message together, the elders came to us. We talked about this. We talked about doing a building block series, the, the foundational pieces of our faith. We completely understood that this, this series had the potential to lose a lot of people in that, well, it's kind of maybe a little bit boring to talk about theology. Uh, you know, it, it might, we might not all be as interested in it. Uh, I'm a little bit of a nerd. That's kind of a, a secret, maybe not to all of you, uh, but to some of you maybe that is. But I do, I like theology. I like the study of who God is. I, I have built uh, somewhat a library of some of those big theological terms. I know some of those. Uh, and so it, it interests me, but we get, I get, that to not everyone, uh, maybe not everyone is as into it uh, as we are. But of course, if you're here this morning uh, and you say, I'm a Christian, I'm a believer of Jesus, in Jesus, then there should be some sense in which you say, okay, I want to I know what I believe and I want to know why I believe it. I want to understand why I believe it. So if you're here this morning, this topic should automatically interest you because I said the idea of being a Christian is to follow after Jesus, to put your faith in Jesus, to be a Christ follower. And so that should interest you. Well, I want to know more about Jesus. I want to understand who he is. Also, at the same time, you should be thinking, I want to test everything that Chris has to say about Jesus because I know what I believe about Jesus. I know why I believe it, but I want to put those things to the test. We should never come into a place like this, into a service, and just kind of turn our mind off and say, well, whatever he says, that must be true. But we need to test it, as God has told us to do, against what God's word says. Because as Adam laid out earlier in the series, that this is where God has revealed himself to us in his word. And so we need to be mindful of that. Also, if you are in the room and you are not a follower of Jesus, say you are not, uh, you're here and you're skeptical. You're saying, I just kind of want to find out more about Jesus. Then this topic should interest you as well. Because... Uh, it, it's evidently you came for some reason and we are going to, I want to tell you about the, the central piece of Christianity, the foundation, the cornerstone of who is this man, Jesus. So I hope that it, it interests you in some way. And my hope is this morning that I don't want to introduce you to just a bunch of theological ideas, Okay, I don't want to just hit you with a bunch of information. My desire this morning is to introduce you to a person. If you're here and you're skeptical about Jesus, I want to introduce you to this person that has made all the difference in my life. He's shaped and formed every aspect of my life. As a, as a husband, as a father, as a man, he's shaped and impacted every 
fiber of who I am. And so I want to introduce you to that person. So I'm really excited that I get that opportunity if you're here and you're in that camp. So what I want to do is I am mindful of my, uh, my inabilities. I'm mindful of the fact that we've all come here this morning and there's some things, you know, maybe we came with a difficult week, a stressful week. Maybe as we were on the ride here, the kids were fighting and we were fighting and we came in and we pasted these smiles on our face and we said, you know, hey, everything's good. Inside, we're really hurting. And so I just want to ask for God's mercy this morning upon me as a speaker that I wouldn't say anything that would misrepresent him, but then as us as a people that we would just be able to uh, understand, embrace, and meet our Heavenly Father this morning. So would you do that with me? Father God, I, as I said, I'm a man in need of your grace. Uh, every day I'm reminded of, of just how much I need your mercy. Um, and Lord, today is no different. Uh, Lord, as I stand here and have this opportunity to share about uh, Jesus, the Son of God, uh, I'm mindful of the weight of that topic, of who he is. And so, Father, I just pray that you would guard my heart and my words this morning, that they would not misrepresent you. And, Lord, that you would be glorified this morning. I pray for our hearts. I pray that the things this morning that have hindered us throughout the week, the sins that have uh, tormented us, Father, uh, I pray that you would help us to to put those off this morning, that they that at least for these next 40 minutes we would gaze upon your face, and Lord, that we would be changed. In Jesus' name, amen. So, no matter where you come from on what you believe about Jesus, it, you would be hard-pressed to find someone that is an intelligent person that would deny the existence of Jesus Christ. Let me say that again. You would be hard-pressed to find an intelligent person that would deny the existence of Jesus Christ. The, The historical evidence, if you put aside the biblical evidence and just take the historical evidence, there is no man that has ever made a greater difference in the history of this world than Jesus of Nazareth. There is no man that has ever made more of an impact that has influenced cultures, that has made a difference in this world other than Jesus of Nazareth. Now... The question would become, well, who was he? The debate becomes, well, who was this man? Was he a great man? Was he a prophet? Was he a priest? What was he? Was he the son of God? And so that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Now, I could spend a lot of time talking with you about what different people believe and how they come to those beliefs, but I want to spend time on one central thing this morning, and that is what this church, and when I say church, I don't mean the building, I mean a body of people, a group of people, what we believe about who Jesus Christ is. Now, it's no secret. If you go on our website, you can find what we call a doctrinal statement. It's a theological statement about who Jesus is. And so I want to look at that with you uh, for a second this morning. And what we're going to do is we're going to break this statement down. And here's what it says. It says, We believe that Jesus Christ was God in human flesh, at once fully divine and fully human. We believe in his virgin birth, his sinless life, his miracles, his vicarious and atoning death on the cross. His bodily resurrection, his ascension to the right hand of the Father, his present ministry of intercession, and his personal return in power and glory. Now, if I lost you, please forgive me. I'm going to define some of these things. I know that some of you are thinking, oh boy, this might be a long message. But I will try my best to keep this, keep you engaged, all right, and keep you uh, tracking with us this morning. Because I believe that these, a statement like this, we look at this and we say, all right, through it. 
We could go to a bunch of different churches and they would have this exact same doctrinal statement. This is the, the Amex statement of faith on who Jesus is. So there's a bunch of churches in our area that would have this same statement. But I want to break it down for you and this is why. Because I, I believe that it will strengthen our faith. If we understand why we believe something, it, it strengthens our faith. It, it cements it in our heart. We say, yeah, I, I, I do believe that and I do know why. So I think it's important that we understand what we believe, why we believe it. And it will also increase your sense of all in God. And when, you're, when your all of God is increased, you will worship him. It just happens naturally. When you understand, when you gaze upon the majesty of God, you are in wonder, left in wonder of him. It drives you, it leads you to worship him. And I believe that will happen uh, as we talk about who Jesus is. So, all right, here we go. You guys ready to wrestle this down? I'll do my very best to keep us awake and engaged. So the first part of our statement is we believe that Jesus Christ was God in human flesh, at once fully divine, which means he's fully God and fully human. All right? And we look at this statement and you say, hold on a second. Because this seems to be kind of an inexplicable paradox. How can he be God and man at the same time, how is that possible? How can he be 100% God and 100% man? Because if we would say, well, he was 50% God and 50% man, man, when we do the math, that makes sense. But how can he be 100% God and 100% man at the same time? Well, let's talk. The Bible is clear. God is clear. It depicts, God tells us that Jesus, when he came in the flesh, was fully God. I'll give you a couple of examples from the scripture uh, kind of to build the foundation for this. So there it is. Jesus is God. He's fully divine. Matthew chapter 1, verse 23. And this is the, the angel, Gabriel, coming to Mary and talking about uh, who Jesus is going to be. And it says, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. And he's quoting from the Old Testament. He's quoting Isaiah. And he says, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. And they will call him Emmanuel, which means... God with us. There you go. Thank you, Trinity. I appreciate that. God with us. There it is in, the very, in his very name, Emmanuel, God with us. There is no doubt Jesus comes and he is God. I'll, I'll fast forward the story a little for you. Much later, uh, John, who was one of Jesus' best friends... On the face of the earth, he was one of Jesus' disciples. He records this moment between Thomas, one of the other disciples, and Jesus after the death and resurrection. After his death and resurrection, many of the disciples, they're they're distraught. They think it's over. They've left. They've gone home. They've gone back to do their other things. And some of the disciples see Jesus, his, the resurrected Jesus, and they are worshiping God. There's no doubt Jesus is the Son of God. He has risen again. And they come to Thomas and they tell him. And Thomas says, I will not believe it until I see the holes in his hands and the piercing in his side. Thomas doubted it. And Jesus, as the Son of God, he knew it. And he met Thomas in his doubt, and he says this. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side and stop doubting and believe. And when Thomas saw this, here's his statement. He said to him, my Lord and my God. 
He saw Jesus in that moment as God. Now, I don't know what he believed before that. It's obvious he had his doubts. It's obvious that he was unsure. I don't know if he, he, he must not have been who he said he was. But now he looks at Jesus and he says, my Lord and my God. And he recognizes Jesus as God. Finally, and there are many, there are many that I could cover, and we don't have time uh, today because the eagles are on at one, so we'll just keep going. (laughs) Titus chapter 2, verse 13. So Paul, writing to Titus, he says this, while we wait for the blessed hope, he's writing to another pastor here, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, and who is it? Jesus Christ. The Bible, God, clearly reveals that Jesus is God. There is no doubt. There's no argument. If you read the text in its fullness, you will understand he is God. And yet, the Bible clearly depicts, shows us, illustrates that Jesus is also man. When he comes to earth, when he comes to earth through Mary... He's man, fully human. I'm going to talk with you a minute about this, this passage here in Luke. Luke was a, uh, a doctor, and so he often gives us some insight into things that other writers don't give us insight into. There were things that were interesting to Luke that caught his eye that others it, they didn't necessarily catch their eye. And one of the things that he illustrates as he's talking about Jesus, he says this, And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature. And in favor with God and man. Well, now, wait a second. If Jesus is fully God, how does he grow in wisdom and stature? Doesn't he know everything? I want you to think for a second. Now, I'm not suggesting that, this, that Jesus had any sin in his life. Because even in our own statement, it says that Jesus was sinless. So I'm not suggesting that. But there are things that you can do in folly. There are things that you can do in uh, I need to grow in that area that aren't necessarily sinful. I mean, picture the, the toddler Jesus, the two-year-old Jesus, and, and Mary has finished cooking the meal, all right? She finishes cooking. She places the, the hot pan or pot, whatever it is, on the table, and curious Jesus, what does he do? He reaches out his hand and touches it, and it burns him, right? That's not a sin. Any of you who have had children have probably had that moment where your child reaches out and touches something hot. All right, not a sin, but he had to grow in wisdom, understanding. I mean, I can picture this, and and these things aren't in the Bible. I'm just trying to help you understand and think through what are the implications of this passage. All right? But I, I could picture Jesus as 10-year-old as Jesus, and his dad, Joseph, is a carpenter, right? And he goes into the, the shed, the, the woodshed, or wherever his dad's shop is. And those of you men in the room that have tools, you know, if you have sons, those tools are not safe. Those sons will find the tools. And so I can picture Jesus as a, he's going to be a carpenter someday, and so he's curious, and he, he thinks, well, you know, we have this wagon that we put behind the mule, and it, it, we carry stuff with it, but that's not fun. So what if we put a wheel on the front of it, make a third wheel, and, it, and then we, we go up to the top of the hill, and I get James to sit in it, and then I, I push James down the hill, and the cart goes down the hill, and down the hill it goes and hits a rock, and James flies out, cuts himself up, and goes running to mom, and Jesus, he, he made this cart, and I went down the hill, and I cut myself, and, and Jesus is like, 
I didn't, I didn't know that was going to happen. Like, but it happened. You know, and, and that's not in Scripture. But the, it's fun, isn't it, though? I mean, but he grew in wisdom and stature. So just for a second, just, we, we tend to think that Jesus was just completely perfect. Like, he came out and he was like, thank you, mother. You know, and just, but that didn't happen. He had to grow in wisdom and stature. And I don't know what exactly. I mean, I think it's probably for good reason that God doesn't give us all the stories of Jesus as a, a toddler and then as a, as a preteen and all those things. It just doesn't. And he wasn't sinful. Hear me. He was not sinful. All right? Now, if they're, luckily the children are in children's church because if they just heard me, they said, oh, so it's not sinful to put my brother in a cart and push him down the hill. I didn't say that. But you get where I'm going with that. All right, here we go. So John, he tells us about another aspect of Jesus' humanity. This is when he was grown during the years of his ministry. John chapter 4, verses 6 through 7. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey. Now I ask you the question, how does God become tired? God does not grow tired or weary. He's not exhausted. He doesn't sleep. He doesn't take a vacation or a sabbatical. He doesn't think, I need time off. But Jesus, in his humanity, was tired, and he sat down at the well, and it was noon. And when a Samaritan woman came to draw water, I didn't want that to happen, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? Why did Jesus ask for a drink? Because in his humanity, he's thirsty. In his humanity, he's thirsty. Jesus was tired. When he was here, he was tempted as we are. He was hungry. He was exhausted. He got frustrated. All of those are things that you and I can relate to. All of those are things that he can relate to us in. Now, I want to give you kind of an illustration because this is, this is still hard. And in our, in our finite minds, I don't know if it's possible to ever completely understand how these two things were possible at one time. All right, but I want to do the best that I can with an illustration. It's very simple, and I recognize that the, this illustration is going to break down. If you study it, if you go through it, you're going to look at me, and you could write me an email and say, Chris, I think that that illustration breaks down on points X, Y, and Z. And I would say, yes, you're right, it does, okay? So I just saved you some time. Don't write me the email. Okay, here we go. Superman. Superman. All right? I think that Superman, as I thought about this, put this together, Superman kind of breaks across the generational divide because we keep telling his story, right? I think, I mean, you could buy the comic books, I think, in the 60s, maybe 50s. Some of you were around back then. You could tell me exactly, probably. Uh, I wasn't. I didn't come along until the 80s. And even in the 80s, we were talking about Superman. And even recently, we had a movie come out not long ago called The Man of Steel, all right? So we understand who Superman is. Now, think about for a second Clark Kent... All right, Clark Kent is this kind of weak guy, right? There's nothing that draws us to Clark Kent. You look at Clark Kent and there's, he's just an average, everyday guy. But Clark Kent is Superman. And Superman is Clark Kent. They're inseparable. And even while Clark Kent is in his normal attire, all right, jacket, suit, black glasses, even when he's in his normal attire... He has all the powers of Superman. And yet there are many, many, many times that he has to refrain 
from using those powers because he doesn't want to reveal his identity. He doesn't want people to know that he is Superman. The way I kind of see this is I kind of see that Jesus is Superman in reverse because there he is. Stay with me here. In his glory, in his majesty, king of kings, eternal, right? Eternal, no beginning, no end. He's always been. And humanity is created, sin happens, the fall happens, and things get really nasty on earth. And we are powerless to help ourselves. Powerless, can't do anything. Nothing we can do to accomplish a righteousness good enough for God to accept us. Because God is perfect and he's holy. And so what Jesus does is he takes the, the suit off, the king's suit, right? He lays the crown down and says, I will go and I'll enter into humanity in the flesh. I'll enter into humanity in the flesh. And as he's here, he has all of his capabilities that he would have when he was there in glory. All the capabilities. I mean, it says he could call down legions of angels at any time. But he sets those things aside so that he can come and sympathize with us. So that he can come and die for us. And so you might ask, well, why why did Jesus... Come in the flesh, and why did he have to die? Why didn't he just come, like clouds open up, Jesus rolls in and makes everything right? Well, here's why I believe that happened. I believe Jesus put the flesh on because there had to be blood to cover for our sin. There had to be a sacrifice made for our sin. If you watch The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, you understand what Aslan did. There had to be a sacrifice. And Jesus couldn't just come and show up with his crown as the king and go and die. Because God cannot die. God cannot die. He could not die just coming as God. But when he came and he put the flesh on, right, he could experience humanity. He could experience humanity. And, of course, he could die. On that cross for our sin. Now there's a lot more implications there. A lot more things I could go into. But listen to me on this. This is where. This is the road. This is where everything changes. Right? There is no other religion. Right? Like Christianity. There is no other religion like Christianity. And right here, what I'm talking about right now, is the place where Christianity just turns off to the side and it's completely different, completely exclusive in and of itself. Because Jesus enters into humanity and he dies for the sins of his people. There is no other religion where God enters in to the humanity of his people and makes atonement. For their sins. No other religion. It's the, difference, it's the difference between Christianity and every other religion. And it's important that we understand it. The Apostle Paul, he lays this out really, really well in this book called Philippians. It's a letter to the church in Philippi. And he says this. And there's much more. I'd encourage you to look at this passage through the week. Because this passage, uh, I've been studying it for a long time. And it, every time I read it, it, it just blows my mind. In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. So Paul's talking to us, to us, and he's saying, same mindset as Christ Jesus. Who being in very nature God, right? He, he describes it. He says he's God. 
He did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. And if you go on in the passage, and I didn't include it here, and that's my fault, but it says that he laid down those things. And he was obedient to the point of death and the death on the cross. Folks, hear me on this. I step back and I look at a world that is angry at God, furious at God, so mad. I, I think it's interesting that, that people say, that people would claim I'm an atheist or I don't, I don't believe in God. And yet there seems to be this unquenchable anger that they have towards God. Our world is so angry at God because they look around and they see the, 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 the just de- devastation, the destruction. I mean, you look through our world, you look just at the news, Ebola, all right, things like that that cause all these deaths. All right, natural disasters, uh, the divorce rate is high, abortions. You know, you go through this long, long list. Our jails are full. Why is all of this happening? And people want to pin it all on God. And here's where we as the church, believers in Jesus, need to turn around and say, no, 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 you don't understand. You, you don't understand because all of that, the, the destruction, all that stuff, all right, that is all happening because of our sin and rebellion against God. We've caused that. We've said, God, we don't need you. Get out of the picture. We've caused that. But God loves us so much, so much that he would enter into that humanity. He doesn't leave us here. He doesn't push us away. He says, come to me, all you are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. I died for your sins. I understand your sin. I died for it. But come to me so that you can have forgiveness. And yet our world still goes on and they're just angry. Angry at God. So I need to keep moving here. We're going to be here all day. So we go on in a statement that talks about his sinless life and his virgin birth. And if you have questions about the virgin birth, I, I actually, I am somebody who believes the virgin birth, that, that idea is really, really important. Some people would want to say, well, it's not as important. It's kind of a secondary thing. I think it's really, really important. If you have questions about the virgin birth, you're in really, really good company because Mary, who was Jesus' mother, had questions about the virgin birth too. And the angel comes to her, and he tells her what's going to happen. And she says this. She says, well, how will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin. So I don't think she's questioning God and his authority or his uh, sovereignty and power. I think she's just asking the question, uh, am I missing something here? Is there something else I'm supposed to do? Because I'm a virgin, God. But the angel answered her. The Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. All right? And don't corrupt this. Don't pollute this. This is God, all right? The Holy Spirit comes upon Mary and he forms this body, this child, that Jesus will come and enter in. It will take the place there. All right? And I don't... Of course, it's a miracle. I can't fully describe it to you. But I think it's really important, and here's why. I'll give it to you real quick why I think this is important. Because Scripture's clear that the sins of the Father go from one generation to the next. The sins of the Father are passed down. Some of us who have been dads long enough, we look at our kids and think, oh my. They're having some of the same traits that I have. And it scares us, if we're honest. 
The sins of the Father are passed down. We have this sin nature in us. We can't help it. It's there. It comes from birth. But Jesus was born of a virgin because there was no corruption there. It was completely pure. I think that's why, one of the reasons why I think it was real important. Of course, it had to be a miracle because it was of God and the Son of God. It only happened once. Had to be a miracle. So let's keep moving in the statement here as we keep making our way through it. So we go through his sinless life, his miracles. We could talk about all that. But I want to get to this point, his vicarious and atoning death on the cross. Because we don't use this word vicarious all that often. It doesn't stand out. And we don't, like automatically we don't think, oh yeah, I know what that means. It takes some, a little bit of thought. For me anyway it does. Maybe not you. But it takes a little thought. And so at first glance we think, well, what in the world is that? And so I looked it up for you. I looked up the word vicarious. Here's what it is. Acting or done for another. Acting or done for another. Now, you've probably heard the statement, oh, he's vicariously living through his son. Or she's vicariously living through her daughter. And I think it happens a lot to moms and dads. And so when Aaron and I first uh, had Gabe, our first son, I set out and I said, I'm not going to be that dad. I'm not going to be the dad that vicariously lives through his children, who places my goals and aspirations on him. But I'm going to let him, because he is a created by God in the image of God, have his own goals because God's created him for something to do and it's not necessarily what I have done or I want to do. And I think about this as, as he has gotten older, it's gotten a lot more difficult for me because he actually likes playing football and baseball, which are the two sports that I played when I was uh, his age and older. And I love those sports. Something about those sports, God has kind of just grafted that into my life, and I really am drawn to them. I spent a lot of years in my life investing in them, working hard at them. And now as I watch him, all right, as I watch him play, I, if you see me at a game when I'm watching my son play, just know this, that I am in a lot of angst. There's a lot, a lot going on in this heart here, and I'm suppressing a lot because I know all the things that, there's all these things that I've learned because I grew in wisdom and stature. I had to learn some things. You know, I worked hard. I, I learned some things that work a little bit better than others. And so as I watch him, I'm thinking, oh, I just, I just wish that I could take all of this information, all this experience that I have, and somehow just download it into his brain so they didn't have to learn it all. On his own. But I can't do that. And I can't place those, those unrealistic expectations on him. It has to be his desire. And God's teaching me that. It has to be what he wants to do. It can't be what you want him to do. And so I keep working at that. You can pray for me in that. That I would do well at that. But in this case. In the case of Jesus on the cross. It is doing or acting for another. Right? Jesus came to this earth. And died on a cross on our behalf. I will share with you one of my favorite passages. This isn't the first time I've shared it from this stage. It's one of my favorite passages in all of scripture. Martin Luther called this the great exchange. 2 Corinthians 5.21. I would encourage you to memorize it. If you're the kind of person that likes to memorize things. God made him who had no sin. To be sin for us. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Think about this for a second. God made him who had no sin, that's Jesus, to be sin for us. When Jesus went to the cross, when Jesus went to the cross, he took all of our sin, 
all of our sin, the ugliness of our sin, he took it upon himself. He said, I will take your sin in exchange. What does he do? So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And I will give you my perfection. My perfect life. So that when God looks at you, he sees my righteousness, not your inconsistencies and failure. Think about that for a second. The implications of that. God went to the cross and became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. That we might have a right standing with a holy God. If we just let that set in, that's overwhelming. Because he knows, he saw us in the midst of our great need, in the midst of our desperation, while we were still enemies of his, when he could have destroyed us, he said, no, I love him too much, I'm going to step in and I will take the penalty on myself. What some scholars and theologians like to call that is substitutionary atonement. There was a debt that had to be paid. Someone had to pay it. Jesus came. And paid the debt for you. I'll share with you a quick story that illustrates this. Uh, Many years ago when I was in high school, some friends of mine and I went to Philadelphia. We went down to South Street, hang out for the day. Uh, We're coming back on the turnpike. We get kind of hungry and have to go to the bathroom, uh, which happens to teenage boys. They get hungry and they drink too many things and then they have to go to the bathroom. So that's what we did. We stopped at the, the plaza to do those things, and as we get into the car, we're driving, and we're, we're heading up to Morgantown and get off at the exit, and the guy that's driving realizes, hey, I don't have the, the ticket that I need. And we're all looking around like, you got the ticket? No, I don't, I don't have the ticket. And we pull up, and because time's running out, you know, you feel the pressure to get up there, and we pull up, and we're like, uh, we don't have the ticket. And the guy is like, well, that's all right. It just costs you $25 because I assume you came from Pittsburgh. Like, what? Like, they automatically assume if you lose that ticket that you drove from Pittsburgh to there. So he wouldn't take our word for it that it should be a 75-cent toll from Valley Forge to Morgantown. He wouldn't believe us. And so he said, well, you, you need to pay $25. And we look around, and we got change in my friend's change thing there in his car. But that's all we got. We don't have anything else because we spent all our money on the food. And so... We're like, well, all right, what do we do now? And for some reason, it didn't occur to us that we could just drive away. Like, we'd just drive away, and his dad would get the ticket in the mail, probably. That didn't occur to us, or else he didn't want to do it. I don't remember. But we pulled off to the side, and we're like, all right, we'll get the money. We'll get the money somehow. And so thinking through it, we came up with this plan. Well, we'll just ask people for the money. As they pull up to the toll booth, surely they will see these five desperate teenagers and think, well, we need to help them. And some of them put their window quickly back up because they were thinking, what are these guys doing? But uh, eventually we come across this woman who I believe with all my heart she was a, a mom of teenage boys. Because she, she appeared to be in her 40s, late 40s, and she asked us what the problem was and we told her. And see, back then we didn't have, I know this is amazing teens, we didn't have cell phones. We didn't, so we didn't have cell phones, so we couldn't call anybody. And so... She says, well, what's the problem? And we tell her, and she's like, well, I'll, I'll pay for the toll. And she gives us the $25 to pay for the toll. And so we paid for the toll. But in that moment, we were powerless to do, I mean, there were probably other things we could have figured out. But as, as far as making the money or getting the money to pay the toll, we didn't have it. We didn't have any other way of getting it. And she stepped in and paid it for us. 
She paid it for us. And I think of what Jesus did on the cross for us. And so I told you that I want to introduce you to this person, not just a theological idea. Here's the practical application of this. All right, we're almost done, so stay with me. But here is the practical application of how this fleshes itself out in our lives. All right, because I don't serve a theological idea of who Jesus is. I don't serve a theological idea. I don't base my life around a religious system of do this, don't do that. I don't base my life around that. I don't worship Jesus because I think it's cool to be part of a group of people called Christians. I don't come to church to make myself feel better. I don't come to church because it's something that I have to do. No. I do those things. I come to church because I enjoy it. I serve people because I have a God who saw me in the midst of my need and stepped in and served me. I forgive others or try. Not because I'm just told to, because God tells us that we should forgive those that sin against us. And he didn't just tell us that, but he showed us that. And I serve a God that did that for me. I serve a God that stepped in and showed me what it is to serve, what it is to give, what it is to love. I do those things because of Jesus Christ. Because of his example of what he's done. Because of who he is. I don't just do that because it's a religious thing to do. And see the the profound difference here? Do you see the profound difference there is between religion, which says, I need to do all of these things to make God happy. And if I keep doing those things, if I keep serving on this, uh, this board, if I keep volunteering, if I keep giving my money to the church, if I just go to church two out of four, mo- four times a month, that's good. If I do, if I do, I do, I do, I'll make God happy. That's religion. But following Jesus is saying, I have fallen in love with this person who first loved me, who gave his life for me, who died on a cross so that I might be made right. And now I want to serve him. I want to do as he has done because I want to bring him honor. I want to bring him glory. I want to worship him. Because he's worthy of it. Because he's all I got. So that's why I do those things. If you move on in our statement just a little more, you find another key element to why we worship Jesus. Why I worship Jesus. Why we as a church, worship Jesus. And that's his bodily resurrection, his ascension to the right hand of the Father. I want to read for you a passage again. This is Apostle Paul writing to the church in Corinth. And he says, what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. That's the gospel, the message of the gospel. And he says that Christ died for our sins. We just went over that. According to the scriptures, that, that he was buried... But that he was raised on the third day. That's so key. He was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter. And then to the twelve. And after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time. Most of whom were still living. Though some now have fallen asleep. Which is Paul's nice way of saying they passed away. All right. It's the resurrection that changes everything. Because God, Jesus, did not just die. Because if he had just died, then all he was was a good person who had a lot of good things to say and a lot of great teachings. And the world has seen a lot of great men and women who have had a lot of great things to say and done a lot of great things. 
But Jesus did not just die. He rose again because the grave cannot contain God. And he conquered sin and death for us. And his resurrection changes everything. The power of the resurrection changes everything. And his naysayers, the ones that killed him, wanted to prove that he wasn't who he said he was. But they never found his body because it wasn't there to be found. See, the power of the resurrection gives us hope. And that hope, it changes everything for us. It gives us hope that we can be renewed, that we can be restored, that our sins can be forgiven. It gives us that hope because Jesus has said, I am I am, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Come to me, you will find rest. And see, it's because of the resurrection, it's because of the resurrection that I believe all that this word has to tell me, all that God's word has to tell me. I believe the Old Testament stories. I believe the miracles in the Old Testament. I believe the miracles that Jesus performed. I believe in the early church. I believe the miracles that happened there. And I believe all of it because... Jesus has risen from the dead. And he is who he said he was. He is who he said he was. I want to close with this. If you would, open with me to a passage. We haven't looked yet at a passage of scripture together in the Bible. And I saved the best, in my opinion, for last. Uh, If you're new to the Bible, we're going to be in the book of John. John is Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. You go into the New Testament, you'll find this book of John. As I said earlier, John is one of uh, Jesus' closest friends, his disciples. He records a lot of conversations that he had with Jesus, a lot of things that Jesus taught. And what he's about to show us here in John 14 is that uh, this is right before, or very closely before Jesus is about to die. He's preparing his disciples for this. Here's what he says. Do not let your hearts be troubled. I think Jesus is telling us the same thing today as he was then. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You look at the world system. You look at all that's happening. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. That's what he's telling us today. Trust in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. And if it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you may also be where I am. I believe that with all my heart because of the resurrection. I believe that he now is at the right hand of God the Father. He's making intercession for you and I, which means he's going between us and God the Father. He's saying, I see their struggle. I see their hurt. I see their sin. I understand it. I sympathize it and sympathize with it. And I died that they might be forgiven. And he's gone to prepare a place for us. And when he comes back, much to the world's surprise, he will not come back in the same peaceful manner in which he came the first time. And if you read the book of Revelation, you'll see how he comes back. But verse 4, he says, you know the way to the place where I am going. So he's saying, follow me, come with me, trust me. And Thomas, there's our friend Thomas again, said to him, but Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Thomas is still thinking all physical. And I I sympathize with Thomas because I probably would say the same thing here. Like, wait a second, Lord. I I don't know where the stairway to heaven is. How am I supposed to follow you there? Because I didn't see that. Is that hidden behind the tree somewhere? Or, Or explain to me how I get there. And he's missing it because he's thinking physical. And Jesus answers to him and he says, 
I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Except through me. Jesus, only the Son of God, can make a statement like that. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And you cannot get into eternity with God without me. I'm the way. Trust me for the forgiveness of your sins. Trust me as you walk through life with others. In your marriage, trust me. In your relationships, trust me. In your financial stress, trust me. Fix your eyes. It tells us later, fix your eyes on Jesus. I'm going to challenge you with this, and then I'll I'll pray for us and, and be done. But what happens so often in life is we become so overwhelmed with the the problems of this life, the struggles of this life, the financial burdens of this life, the relational struggles, the the conflicts that happen, and we struggle so hard because it's, I just want to fix this, I just want to make it right, I just want to make it better. And the whole time we're looking at the problem instead of looking at the one that's come to solve the problem, and that's Jesus. And if we would just fix our eyes on Jesus, it would make it so much easier to forgive that person. To trust him in the midst of that financial stress. But see, we're so focused on the offenses, the stuff that's here, which is exactly what our enemy wants us to focus on. And if we just take a second and fix our eyes on Jesus, and we would see, wait a second, he's forgiven me in the midst of all of my mess. How can I hold that person to this? How can I do that? I need to extend forgiveness. And that forgiveness comes in understanding how great, how much you've been forgiven yourself. So, my challenge, my hope is that you see that in Jesus is our Savior. In Jesus is all all our hope is in Him. In the one who has come to make us right. Let me pray for us. Father, again, I thank you for your great kindness, love, patience. Father, I pray that you would help us to see Jesus for who he truly is, that we would see uh, your son and that we would gaze upon his face. Lord, I pray that all those other things that, that hinder us, that hold us down, they would fade away. Lord, forgive us for the times that we make so much out of this life. We make so much out of the things around us that we forget to even come to you and bow at the foot of the cross and ask for your mercy. God, I pray that for us this morning, that we would be people that would come to you, that we would lay all the burdens, all the anxiety down at the foot of the cross and just lay them in Jesus' hands, that he might restore us in our heart and in our mind. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.